Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Dr. David Cartland. Uh, David Cartland is a GP having practiced since uh, 2014 as a GP and he has been a doctor for the last 14 years as well. Look, David, that's a two second, very rough outline as to who you are. Why don't you take two minutes, introduce yourself to the audience and then we're just going to dive on into why we're here today. Yeah, hi Sonny. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, um, firstly. Um, secondly, yeah, um, I'm, as you mentioned, I've been a, a GP now since 2014. Um, you know, as, as well as being a GP, I'm also uh, uh, an A&E GP and an out-of-hours GP, so I work across a sort of breadth of settings, really, um, in that I'm not just a standard healthcare doctor, as in healthcare centre, should I say. Um, part of the pandemic, I worked in the Midlands, uh, Birmingham, uh, around those hospitals there, mainly around district generals, um, and then moved down sort of 18 to 20 months ago to Cornwall to be the sort of next stop Martin, apparently. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's been uh, an interesting couple of years, really. So I've experienced the pandemic, like I say, in various settings, um, in various locations in the, in the geography of the UK. Um, and the, the two years experience has been pretty, um, yeah, it's been an observational exercise initially. Um, and, and ultimately, as um, as I'm sure you're aware, I resigned from the post in the end just because of um, you know the inability to escalate my concerns to the to the, the people that needed to, to to take action on them, um, and so that's that's led to my resignation. And I've quit the NHS since. Um, and yeah, long story uh, in summary. And other than that, you know, I'll just say that um, I'm a family man. I've I've come down to Cornwall for a good quality of work-life balance. You know, I was living the dream, you know, three day weeks, two and a half day weeks and uh, learning to surf, etc. Um, and, and, and just as an aside from that, you know, prior to being a doctor, um, I was a scientist. I did a, a degree in biomedical science and angiogenesis, um, lots of immunology, virology. And, and again, I think that slightly sets me aside from other doctors in that the undergraduate program for being a doctor has very little in terms of those aspects of virology and immunology and you know I've seen that play out in the last few weeks where you're trying to speak to colleagues about um, immunological issues things like asymptomatic carriage you know the fact that the vaccine isn't doing what it should be doing in fact it's it's doing strange things to the immune system as we've seen play out in the in the last couple of weeks anyway um, and so you can't have those conversations because the knowledge of, uh, of uh, their, their undergraduate knowledge isn't very you know very good i'll say yeah say it as it is um compared to that biomedical science degree that i did it's it's given me that skill set and knowledge it's very interesting that you mentioned that as that's one of the things that i found as well so um as you're aware i'm a physiotherapist but actually prior to that i've got a biomedical science degree in physiology human physiology awesome. looking at immunology looking at virology looking at drug development and the drug development stages and i know uh, a ton of doctors uh, i know a ton of people working in the uh, healthcare profession and when i have these conversations about drug development and why it takes so long normally and what steps had or hadn't been missed i was quite baffled to find um the pushback was essentially yeah but you know if they say it's okay it's it's all right you know they can skip that stage where they don't need to do that x part of research and I'm, I'm sitting there scratching my head saying hold on a minute i did i did a whole degree breaking this stuff down and looking into this stuff like th there's a reason we have it but it's a crux of science sonny really it's a crux of science isn't it it's debate it's discussion it's hypothesis testing that's what we're in the business of as scientists but you know that transfers across to medicine i think you know as medics we're scientists and that art seems to have gone out of the equation from you know pretty much from med school to be honest the, the medical degree you were kind of given guidelines you know is kind of the, the teacher was almost sort of follow the manual follow the manual exactly and you don't get to think outside of the box and if you do you're made to kind of yeah just just doubt yourself really it's all sort of guideline algorithmic led um, and as you mentioned from you know both of our science backgrounds i mean even things like medical statistics i'd say you know discussing you know confidence intervals and significance uh, it flies over the head of most mm. um senior gp colleagues you know that you know, it's the bread and butter of reading a paper appraising it and coming to conclusions or not you know and having that debate i'm, I'm more than happy to be wrong on all of this stuff that i present to my colleagues and i, I really wish i am and hope i am but yeah. i think i am <laughs> you and me both but um let's come back to what 
I'm sure we're going to touch on that later on in the conversation, but let's come back to the reason that you stepped away after 14 years working as a doctor, after the last eight years working as a GP, you decided about a month ago, give or take that, you know, enough's enough. You need to walk away from that particular situation and send your message that way that if you guys aren't going to, you know, make a change or make a difference in what we're seeing here and what we've agreed that we're all seeing here, I, I need to make some kind of louder statement. And if doing it within the meeting isn't enough, I need to do it by handing in a, a letter of resignation. Can you maybe talk to us about the steps that led to that, what it was that you were seeing, what it was that unnerved you at that point in time? Yeah, it's a big question, Sonny, to be honest. It's a wide question. But I mean, over the last, I mean, my whole GP career, really, without playing the violin, it's not been a, a great time to be a GP, really, in terms of uh, just generally the amount of, that's expected of you on a daily basis and inability to do your job properly. You know, and we've seen that in the back end of the pandemic, really, that patients have been presenting later and later with things, uh, you know, things like massive weight loss, rectal bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And you just... You know, you've got angry patients from the outset because they haven't been able to get to you. You can't give them the service that you want to give them. Um, that's sort of outside of the pandemic, really. That's the sort of setting off. Um, it just not being a very fun job anymore. And then just the, the, the two years, really, was the sort of, I keep calling it the sort of Titanic after the iceberg, really. That um, It feels like, you know, it's that very last few scenes from the Titanic now of the, the sort of ship pointing upwards. Um, and on its way down and it's I mean there's a few things really it's not something I can answer really easily and quickly it's things like you know the mandating of vaccinations for NHS staff that was a real just and, and bearing in mind just to set the context on these that um, I am vaccinated that's the interesting thing that sets me apart I've had two vaccines for very different reasons so I'm not an anti-vaxxer I support vaccinations you know in all other settings um, that's that's one thing but um, yeah, the mandate was a big one. I just couldn't get my head around how, you know, they were willing to, you know, sack people. I mean, people have been called out and they're treated very differently for being unvaccinated. And it just doesn't go along with the, the ethical code that I signed up to. That's one thing. Obviously, that's in this country, that's been sort of pushed down, um, down the timeline a little bit. And it's all because it wasn't because of, you know, the autonomy of the, the nurse and doctor's body and their personal valid refusal of consent. It was because they couldn't afford to lose the amount of staff that... Um, that, that they would have done. That was projected. Like, that yeah. was projected. You know, and, um, so that was that. So, I mean, that was a big kick in the teeth. And, you know, I was never going to be sacked. I'd had two jabs, so I was all right, all right in terms of the mandate. Second thing really was around um, just seeing things that were, you know, a couple of things really, that the vaccine wasn't working. Vaccine wasn't working in that, um, you know, the, the vaccine is supposed to do a few things, you know, and, it, and it's certainly not doing any of them in, in any way, shape or form. What I mean by that, Sonny, is that you know, when you take a vaccine treatment, you want it to stop you catching and spreading the disease. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, the second thing is you want it to stop you from becoming poorly um, and die. But the statistics that I was seeing coming out of multiple governments, and you can see that in the UK um, data, the Scottish data is very good for demonstrating the percentages and things. The Israeli data, well, worldwide data supports it, that it doesn't stop you catching, it doesn't stop you spreading. We've seen in the recent weeks that, you know, it's, it's a disease of the vaccinated, really, these COVID positives. And I did a, a very small study at my own surgery that showed that was the case in high percentage terms, 95, 96% of positive tests were treble vaccinated in a small cohort. That's been replicated. Um, so it doesn't do that. It doesn't stop you from becoming poorly and going out into hospital. You know, we're talking about sort of four to one ratio, the four being um, treble vaccinated people in these country studies, the UK and the Scottish data. And then the final harm is obviously death and the four to one ratio. And it's got even worse, actually. It's almost 90% now in the Scottish data. Um, 90% of deaths are in the treble vaccinated, which is, uh, so it's not doing any of the things. And finally, it's it's not safe. I'm seeing lots and lots and lots of signals of harm, as I call them. You know, people just coming in, not right. Um, people that are, you know, you, you've seen the myocarditis in kids seeing, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, everything from weird and wonderful autoimmune things being kick, kicking off in people's bodies, strange fatigue, memory issues, neurological, dermatological, reproductive, cancer, everything. I've seen it all from death to, to just not feeling well and everything in between, as I've been saying. So, and, and you can't call it out. You, you're saying to your colleagues, you know, there's no real willingness to attribute these things to the jab. You know, people will drop down dead days after their jab. Yet no one will even want to talk about the, 
the, the potential. You know, we've seen that you know, many, many, many colleagues contact me and saying, you know, they saw a 16-year-old, for example, I got this yesterday with myocarditis in the local hospital. Um, he had the jab the day before. Now, myocarditis is so obsolete in that age group. It doesn't happen. And we're seeing it, you know, we see it on our TV screens for the footballers and military data coming out of the Department of Defence. Um, it's an epidemic of harm. And it's, you know, we've got to put it in context on the of what my Omicron is now. Omicron is um, endemic. It is, it's getting to that point now where, you know, we've either had it, we're going to get it. It's self-limiting, you know, general viral advice. No one's in ITU with it anymore to a, a large degree. You know, there's outliers, obviously, you know, we saw at the beginning of the um, pandemic, people were poorly. Um, were they poorly of um, a virus, a novel virus? Possibly. Um, a lot of the people that were really poorly were because of their immune systems kind of overreacting to this new pathogen and it was starting to kind of storm, um, hypercoagulable kind of blood clots flying everywhere. And so just seeing all of this harm and just not being able to, sorry, it's a long-winded answer, so I need to go this, but, uh, but it's all of these things together that contributed to the fact I can't work amongst people that are not willing to, um, to, to, to recognise harm, have a scientific debate about it. But ultimately, you know, we've, we've lost our values as doctors. You know, we're, we're, we're very busy all the time. And I, that, that's everyone's excuse, we're busy. But we've lost our basic ethics and morals around things like consent, confidentiality. You know, no one's being consented for these jabs. You know, they're not valid. It's not valid consent, put it that way. Um, and things like, you know, I've talked about in other interviews, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, you know, good medical practice guidance that we have in the country is very specific over 12 domains about things like make your patients um, your, your first, you're, you're the advocate for the patient, make them your first concern, do no harm, um, et cetera, et cetera. And people have seeming to forget that, you know, people, my colleagues now, as we speak, have probably sat there with the, the, the plan to help people today. Um, help people in their, you know, mental health, their physical health, their social circumstances. But th that's fine. But when it comes to COVID, they seem to forget that. It seems to be a sort of law unto itself. Yeah, all out the window just for this one thing. Mm -hmm. There's there's a few things that I want to unpack there. There's, there's one element of the uh, vaccination adverse events that you just mentioned. But I think one of the important things right off the bat is that you mentioned the statistics four to one in terms of uh, triple vaccinated getting COVID in terms of the uh, amounts of death and whatnot. And a lot of that's coming out of the Scottish data, which funnily enough, as of, I think, Friday last week, they've now announced that ONS is no longer going to publish the Scottish data because people are using yeah. it in the wrong way. But data is data. Uh, yeah. But um, someone listening to this might say, yeah, but the thing is, Dr. Cartland, there are a lot more people double jabbed and there are a lot more people that are triple jabbed than there are unvaccinated. So it's always going to look like more people, right? Or is yeah, there something I'll get that, that but on, the, on most of these graphs on the left-hand side of it, it's looking at the ratios of who's triple jabbed. So it's triple jabbed versus all others. So it's second, it encompasses second two, one and zero jabs in that second bar. So, you know, proportionally, those proportions are less than, the, for example, I think the Scottish data is something like 72, 73% are um, treble jabbed. But the percentages of death are, what, 87 or 88 at the last look before they sort of hid the data away for, mis for us misusing it. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, why would somebody die of COVID um, once they've been treble jabbed? That's the purpose of it, yeah? That you know you're supposed to prevent you from dying from the disease. You know it's a it's a it's a sick irony that you would die in a sort of ratio of four to one treble jab versus all of us for of COVID when you've been vaccinated for COVID. That's the way I read the statistics. I get what you're saying about proportions, but you know they are percentages. It's easy to sort of understand, and I get what you're saying in terms of. Yeah, no, but it's good to to get that clear for people listening as well. These are corrected for the numbers as well for the proportions of uh unjabbed to single to double to triple we know the data set so you see that in sort of it, it puts it as ratios per hundred thousand as well so it standardizes that data so you can and it's still the same end result you know it's a disease of the treble jabbed end on another thing that you mentioned is these injuries that are occurring with the vaccine now only up until the pandemic was never familiar and I'm, I'm not a doctor with the yellow card scheme and one of the things that you hear is 
not a lot of doctors are as familiar with the yellow card scheme either or medical professionals so if they're seeing adverse events regardless of whether or not they're attributing it to the vaccine or not there Mm -hmm. are going to be people that aren't well equipped to report that data right there's there's two parts to that then really it's the the fact that you know that just logical discussion around that chap that collapsed clutching his chest yesterday the day after his astrazeneca jab has got anything to do with it so the doctor has to attribute that in his own mind and that's one barrier that's not being overcome by doctors you know it literally is the temporal relationship to the jab itself and the event whether it's a stroke or a pe or a heart attack or a myocarditis episode um so then 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 they've got to have the time to report it and they've got to know how to report it so you know it's a busy job you know if you get your sandwich break you're lucky so these yellow cards are pretty labor intensive, you know, you go and, and we're expecting members of public to do this when doctors, you know, look at the screen and things like Datix reports for significant events in hospital, for example, they're not very user friendly, funny that, but, um, you know, you get four or five pages into it and, uh, and, you know, I can't comment for other doctors, but, you know, I'd like to say I've reported every single adverse effect that I've seen, but you just don't get time. You'd be working till midnight if you did. So, you know, the, the data is very much underreported. You know, Yellow Card have got adverse reactions recently. I think it's 1.4, 1.5 million. Um, they're certainly not the adverse events that you read in, like you see when they're talking about the children's vaccinations, you know. And there was a guy from the JCBI talking about the sort of side effects of it. And he was talking about muscle aches and headaches and general malaise, a bit of a temperature after. But he never mentioned the actual, you know, the very real risk of things like myocarditis. They call it very rare. But then they don't quote the data, which is bizarre. They don't quote, this is what's been going on throughout this pandemic, that the, the, the standards I have to work to as a sort of anti-vaxxer, if you like, you know, I have to back everything I say up with data and statistics and peer-reviewed journals. But at the same point on the radio, you can flick on a channel and it's telling you that you've got an eight ch- times less chance of dying of COVID if you have your booster as a pregnant mom. Take your booster, it produces you. Where's the data? There's not even a reference to the data. You can hear such a... Javid speaking in Parliament, you know, that, that speech about the, um, the the medics and the vaccination mandate, you didn't back it with any data. The people that do come back with some rebuttals and my um, data sets that I present, they're not giving me data back. They're just saying, well, they, they aren't giving me back and then their rebuttal is just a name for mm. uh, or a block. And I've seen that in my own surgeries, you know, that they just will not enter the debate. I keep saying that it's really, really easy to get these people shut down. So if you've got these raving lunatic um, mobs outside the vaccine centre calling out for safety data with the kids, the children, sorry, um, if they've got that data, then give it, give it to them. They'd be, they'd be off quicker. Problem solved. Yeah. Problem solved, yeah. And, and they know, and you can see it in their faces that they know. Um, and that's what keeps me calm in all of this is that, you know, this is only a matter of time. Um, the data is so beyond all reasonable doubt. It's coming left, right, and centre. Whether it's you know myocarditis or blood clots in adults, or the, we, we talked before we started the interview didn't we, about you know pregnancy issues. You know we're seeing this link between you know, unprecedented numbers of fetal. What is the data then? Because the, you and I are saying the data shows, but what is it that the data is showing? Have you got any? Um, sort so of there was a, the, the study that I'm thinking of in terms of that was an Israeli study, and it was. Um, about I think they, there was a big push for the vaccination program back in February. Um, you know, get you similar to what I've just mentioned. Get your jab in pregnancy; it's safe. Again, no data references. Um, you know, even, even just give us figures about how many pregnant women have become poorly from Omicron. This data is impossible to get. It's impossible to get. But yeah, it just showed essentially it was from that month of pushing the vaccine to 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 six or eight months into the future. Just an increase in all outcomes really for you know fetal malformations, uh, early miscarriage, late miscarriage, stillbirth, you know, and the, and the ratio between the, um, the vaccinated group and the unvaccinated group flipped very quickly towards, you know, lots of these awful things were happening in the vaccinated. See something that happens in a normal distribution, which is like a bell-shaped curve, then that's pretty solid, you know, that's a good representation of a cause and effect, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, another thing is, I find the term anti-vaxxer to it's a bit of a pejorative term it's one thrown at people to immediately shut down the discussion like you mentioned they want to go for called worse believe me (laughs) they they, they want to go for name calling rather than bringing the data to you and then discussing in an open honest way of 
this is what the data is actually showing. So, hey, the vaccine is or isn't safe. And by no means am I trying to tell people what to or what not to do. And I don't think that that's your intention either. I, I think you want people to have an open debate, which is the scientific method to look at something. If we have this hypothesis of there might be an issue, we need to then test it or at least look at the available data to then see what way things are leaning, what signals we're achieving from the data. Now, pushing forward, you mentioned also the, the child statistics. Is there anything there that, that we can look at and we can unwrap us to say, look, we have a very strong signal here that there's something going on? Yeah, I mean, we use the, I use the myocarditis data because it's so robust and so clear. And, you know, if you talk about children that are becoming harmed by the vaccine and you talk about harm that is literally, I say heartbroken, you know, the the children with broken hearts because their hearts are becoming inflamed. Um, so a couple of the studies, really, I mean, there's there's one in uh, pretty much the gold standard, really, for looking at a cohort study was the Hong Kong study. Um, and it was pretty much they, they, they'd followed a cohort of people after the jabs. Um and found that I think it was 2,750 or 2,800, one in 2,800 children. So this rare side effect of one in 2,800 um, is not as rare as you would imagine, is it? That's not, if you imagine a football stadium, for example, that's quite a few people at the at the new camp that is uh, that are going to be suffering from myocarditis after the jab. You know, these are real numbers, and, and you know, for the benefit, I mean, you've got to look at um, the means justified by the ends, as it were. Um, and the disease itself, I mean, I, I haven't even, you know, I, I don't think in the two years I've spoke to anyone in the bracket of under 20 that's been, you know, admitted or poorly enough to go to ITU under 20s. It's a disease made of the elderly, of the comorbid, of the obese. Um, and we've seen that across the studies that, you know, it, you know the, the average age of death from COVID is two years above the average age, lifespan of a male. For starters, which is an alarming thing. So it's essentially a disease, and you can't really translate that across to the 13-year-old fit, healthy teenager. That they're by no means comparable in any way. So I think one thing to point out uh, there is that of the data that is available of people in that age bracket, under 20s, under 15s, that have uh, unfortunately passed every life um, that's lost is an unfortunate event um they are also people who have these comorbidities that are seriously ill some of the statistics i think um some of the statistics you see uh, cancer patients uh, that are already almost at end of life and this just happened to be the thing that knocked them off well if you think about the statistic really in itself the deaths that we're being sort of given you know that yellow ticker tape is within 28 days of a positive test you know and, and i've seen it myself where i've sent people in with you know, definitely not COVID strokes, um, you know, heart problems and they die, they succumb to their illness. And at some point along the chain, they've had a positive test and they get added to the figures. And, you know, this is what I'm saying about the discrepancy between the underreporting of adverse effects in the adult population through the yellow card system and then the massive overreporting. You know, I won't sort of look at, uh, you know, there's, there's some degrees of overreporting here that um, pull those figures very close. You know, if we're over-reporting deaths and under-reporting adverse effects, you know, there's 2,000 without, you know, any um, debate, 2,000 deaths on the yellow card system as per now, you know, and if that's under-reported by a certain percentage, you know, we're getting that figure closer and closer to the, the deaths with 1A COVID, and I mean, just 1A is in. That's the only cause of death on the death certificate, which is, I think, is a more reasonable statistic than get struck by lightning. Um, 28 days where you had a positive swab PCR and then death, death certificate reads COVID-19 not struck by a bottle of lightning. Yeah. It, this um, fudging of the data, shall we say, uh, with regards to people dying um, from whatever cause it might be, within a time frame of 28 days post uh, COVID test. Actually, initially, it was of any point in time, they've had a positive COVID test. And then the NHS, I, I think the NHS then said, right, we're going to do it only from within 28 days. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had a lot of these potential hypotheticals of a lightning bolt, let's say. And if they tested at any point positive for COVID prior to that, whether it was 28 days or longer, 
they're going to unfortunately go down as a COVID death. So there's also that bit of data that came out from the freedom of information request of about 17,000 people that COVID was the only cause of death on this certificate. People, people debate with me that freedom of information that you mentioned, that 17,500 as opposed to 180,000. You know, that's a, that's a big difference there. You know, I prefer that piece of data, as, you know, as, as, as reliable as we can be. Me seeing a 1A death certificate that says COVID-19 is a lot more reliable than run over by a tractor in Cornwall. 22 days ago, they had a positive swab. Um, death by COVID, it's just nonsense. And but but they're still using that now, and that's what you see on the ticker tape. That death toll, it's so vague and nebulous, and it's such an important statistic. It, why is it so difficult to just say these are the actual amounts of people that died of COVID? It's not that hard. Like I can say, you know, that person had a heart attack. You know, and this many people had a heart attack this year because it's it's very easy to do. <laughs> if, if they can keep that ticker tape uh, data so up to date, I'm sure they have a way to collect it to actually it's, you know it's really difficult to find I, I use this in my local hospital so we had a freedom of information act at trellisk hospital the local cornwall it serves a whole peninsula pretty much um and there were i think the figure was 10 10 deaths with 1a covid in the whole pandemic or over about a 14 month period 10 and people are shocked when they hear that and to, you know the next thing would be how much did trellisk add to that 180,000? can't find it anywhere there's pages and pages and pages of daily data sets but there's no cumulative I spent hours and hours trying to find out how many did they add, how many total deaths from COVID did you add to the list, Trillisk? And you can't find it. No one has that data. That's also very interesting to, to hear that you know, we can tell you how many died from COVID, but we can't tell you how many we added to the overall number. <laughs> Equally, I mean, not just deaths, but the adverse reactions. We talked about under-reporting and people not knowing how to do it. Um, but ultimately, you know... Um, Locally, I've talked about local levels, like I've seen, for example, lots more blood clots recently, you know, and I'm just correlating that with, um, you know, are we keeping an audit here at the surgery? Are we keeping a local audit, a register of new PEs, for example, or strange cancers that are coming through or infertility stuff? And these are the things that I've noticed through the time, you know, having to send more cancer referrals than ever before, fertility referrals like never before, um, you know, and, and no one's keeping that information, considering it's all part of a, you know, a trial. I will say it is a trial. Um, up until uh, next year, yeah. Up until right. next year, exactly. Yeah, and I mean the children's trial. The the fact that could, that's the other thing, right? The JCVI said no to it, and yet we're still going forward in the UK. It's bizarre, isn't it, how they've turned, haven't they? They've gone from advising not to, and then everyone had the first jab, um, and I think it was handed over at the time to this general medical officer. Um, to take that decision and they overall what the jcbi i mean if the government aren't going to listen to the jcbi that's their business yeah. what's the point and then lo and behold you know the, the, they're going for the second one now in the 12 to 17 categories and then each day becomes a worse nightmare they go for the five to 11 year olds next who are not at any form of risk any form of risk other than massively comorbid children you know like i say you know sick kids are getting dying sadly but they happen to have a COVID positive and then, you know, they get added to the figures. You know, I don't think the figures are very high. I think the ONS data shows it at something like 10 deaths under 20, 10 deaths in the whole pandemic in the UK. 10 deaths shows that that's not good public health policy to vaccinate every under 20 year old healthy with any potential risk, even if it's one in a million. You know, they're not one in a million, as I mentioned from the Hong Kong study, they're not. This is the other thing, right? There's, there's no, conversation about your nnt about your number needed to treat there's no conversation about what the data actually showed in terms of absolute uh and relative risk and and benefits from the injection and i think you know if we start talking in terms of nnts a lot of people are going to turn away from taking their kids for the injection yeah I mean, that's the only thing now. I mean, the, the difficulty in all of that is you, you're blinding the doctors with science. I mean, the poor member of the public seeing all these graphs, you know, next slide, please, next slide, please. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're listening to that as gospel. You know, what Chris Whitty says, Van Tam says, you know, they've got the public in their, the palm of their hands, so whatever they say goes. But they're, they're blinded by all these because these guys can't understand these graphs that are being sort of flicked through um, when they're doing their daily updates. You know, and, the, and the, as you mentioned, NNTs, Probably, you know, I wouldn't give percentages, but not many doctors even know that sort of statistical um, knowledge. And that, that my own knowledge of that came from a first degree. 
Yeah. I didn't touch on medical statistics in, um, in medicine at all, other than significance and confidence intervals, I guess. Yeah, same as myself. Um, that's that's where I know about NNTs. That's where I learned about relative and absolute uh, risk and benefit and whatnot. But before we uh, take it a step further, one of the things that you mentioned is the really easy data to see in terms of myocarditis in uh, children. Now, what we're hearing from the government, what we're hearing on the news is that they're mild cases of myocarditis. Is that such a thing? Is that really something that they can... Well, even as you say that back, you know, it's just a little bit of inflammation of the heart muscle, you know. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? You know, for very little benefit in terms of, you know, it's, you know if it, once it gets to moderate and severe, you're talking about permanent heart damage. You know, these are kids with, as I mentioned, broken hearts. You know, their hearts are... It's like the brain tissue. Once you've had a stroke, the, heart, the brain tissue isn't the same again. Um, same like after a heart attack, you get heart muscle damage and it's not the same, you know, sort of muscle as it was prior. You know, the, the pump function is um, is limited. And again, we don't know. We don't know, you know, how badly that's going to affect them. But, you know, we're, we're seeing these kids dropping down on the football pitches. We're seeing the, the young fit sportsmen dropping down in their droves, you know, football stadiums, people collapsing in the crowd. You know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say, isn't it? If you're seeing this left, right and centre, you know, I'm a big football fan, you know, Said in a previous interview, you can remember by name the, inter- the, the people that have collapsed on the football pitch and had a cardiac arrest. It's happening on every single weekend now, whether somebody in the crowd. Someone knew, yeah. There's a young golfer, 17-year-old, dropped down dead on the golf course the other day, martial artist. You know, people in their prime physical condition, dropping down or dying in their sleep, death certificate reads natural causes. It's not a natural cause to die two days after a jab, for example, in your sleep as a 16-year-old. That's nothing, nothing natural about that. <laughs> It, it baffles the mind that it's just being pushed off to the side as like you say natural causes or ah yeah these things can happen mm. i saw um a doctor who works within fifa saying oh yeah but we have these things happen all the time we're just seeing it more so now i've only been um traveling around the sun for 30 years now you've been on the planet a little longer than myself how many do you really actually remember seeing? Like you say, you can name the amount of times that people have dropped on a field or in the crowd. And that's the even crazier one because the guys on the field, if they've got myocarditis, if they've got an inflamed heart, they're going to have issues when the heart's beating at maximum pump, right? That's, you know, okay, if it's going to happen to the footballers, it's going to happen on the field or if they're having a hard training session. But for it to be happening to people standing in the crowd, I mean, I think so. there was a case of Sunderland. I think their manager, I think he's, I forgot his name. I think he's been sacked recently, but funny that. But uh, he couldn't put a team out because all his players, he couldn't find a goalkeeper because all his players were suffering from heart conditions or, you know, they were being vague about it. But yeah, I think he had four or five players from his first team that couldn't play. You know, you've seen Sergio Aguero. You know, he's he's had to retire. Yeah. You know, there's big, I mean, these are only the big cases because people see them, the Christian Eriksons, for example, you know, we can but speculate it may be something completely unrelated, but, you know, I think the, the public have a, a right to know, you know, if it's a triple jab football that's gone down two days after their whatever branded jab they had, because, you know, this is all just data sharing, isn't it? But you can't mention it. I mean, they're very dubious when they report on it. You know, people say, was he jabbed? Was Christian Eriksson jabbed, for example? And, oh, we can't answer that, you know, very grey. You just answer it, you know. People have got the right to know, you know, if their favorite yeah. footballers dropped down after a jab. You, you get the impression that if he was on jab, they'd put that out there because this is what they did with the uh, Olympic coach, right? They called the guy an anti vaxxer, he died, and they said anti vax coach dead, uh, six time mm-hmm. Olympic medalist or whatever it was. And then actually, in the fine print of the article, they say, Oh, yeah, he, he did recently just, uh, just have a jab. But he was an anti-vaxxer. It's bizarre, isn't it? This illusion that's being created and people keep saying, why? Who's behind all this? What's the end game? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what, what, why would we be doing this? Like de- deception? You know, I, I quoted in a previous interview, somebody going around the ITU saying, you know, ventilated, mm-hmm. unvaccinated, COVID positive and, you know, sweeping around the department. Not one of them was actually ventilated because there were COVID-related illness. There were other things such as, you know, stroke, patient that had all those three criteria they were ventilated COVID positive um you know and 
you know, there's some vaccinated and they're unvaccinated, but, you know, there's a lot of this, and that's a well-known fact that doesn't get talked about, you know, this kind of incidental pickup rate, you know, people go in with a broken leg, COVID positive, and they're on the COVID ward with a fractured neck of femur, for example. It's just manipulation, illusion, delusion, deception. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but I can't be part of it anymore. No, and this was something that I wanted to touch on too as well, as like you say, you worked as a GP within the A&E, you're within the hospital if you're in clinic. I spoke to uh, a CCU nurse uh, from Canada and she was saying her lived experience in the hospital was completely different to what she was witnessing on the news of the hospitals, X, Y, Z, overwhelmed. And that's not to say that they weren't at points. They were. Absolutely, they were. And she was very adamant and clear, like, look, we did have times where things were really dire. But then the messaging coming out from the news was that it was constant and consistent and never-ending. It was wave after wave, storm after storm of patients coming through. Now, she then said, actually, we had those moments, but then we had moments where our ICUs were filled up or CCU was filled up with uh, either um, spousal abuse of patients or uh, attempted suicide patients and, and things like this. And, and there are these other things that are affecting everything that's going on, but the messaging was still consistent on COVID, 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 ticker tape, COVID, COVID, COVID. Tickets. I mean, the media are always elated to report for some reason about that unvaccinated guy, as you just mentioned, that died of, just as an example, really, that the unvaccinated guy, and actually when you read the small print, he wasn't actually unvaccinated, for example. Yeah, or, yeah. It, it's almost it, like, let's rejoice, um, there you go, this is what happens when you're unvaccinated, your conspiracy theories, this guy answered with his life. Um, almost like, no, 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 no. But yeah. it's bizarre, it's an odd mentality. that this, And I don't know what's behind it, I, I wish I did. Uh, but the, the statistics are coming out and they're just very consistent with what we're what you've seen yeah and then you know that you mentioned that ccu nurse i'm inundated since i've left the people you know whether it's on twitter or facebook or phone calls out of the blue just lots and lots of collaborative evidence of you know people's experiences and observations and you know people actually quitting the that's the, that's the next problem we're going to have as a um as an nhs now people have had personnel. Yeah. Lots, lots of personnel people have given up really good nurses and their A&E doctors have had enough you know like you say you've had that experiential very ex different experience to what you're seeing on the BBC of the evening where they're all wandering around in hazmat suits you know many many nurses I know that worked on the COVID wards so had quiet times very quiet times sometimes the nursing staff outstripped the patients by two to one three to one you know there was a very very relaxed time people say considering it's a pandemic I'm not, I've not seen the people you know, on my own lists as a primary care doctor, he's sort of screening 50 patients a day, for example. You know, you'd expect a good chunk of them, you know, if there's a sort of bubonic plague in the rounds, you'd get people come up to this, which is coughing up blood, um, you know, chest pains, breathless, and not in the numbers that you'd kind of, BBC would have you believe. No. You know, no. hope that the stickies would really go to an ITU or a, an A&E setting, but we know that doesn't always work out. No. And the, the thing is, sometimes they're turned away until they're too sick. And then yeah. by the time they're admitted into hospital, they're already on their last legs. Yeah, I mean, I've had, a, there was a girl who recently just, um, she had Quincy, she rang me up from my hometown that I lived in and she said she went into the A&E via an ambulance. She had high fever, delirious, couldn't, couldn't swallow her saliva. And the whole waiting room knew that she was unvaccinated. They wouldn't admit her um, to the hospital because she wouldn't take a test to start with and she was unvaccinated. So they were talking about admitting her to the COVID ward because she was refusing to test. In the end, she self-discharged, had to go to another hospital and she's been on an IV drip since. She's just, just gotten over it. And, you know, this is what I'm saying. Are these nurses not consulting their ethics? They're, you know, they're, they're doing the job because they want to help people, yet calling out people that are unvaccinated, you know, segregating them, you know, medical apartheid. You know, there was talk about unvaccinated nurses and doctors having to wear a little badge just so patients knew that. Now, when I do CPR on somebody, I don't question their, you know, their... Any status, really. You just get on and do it, don't you? You know, you just get on and do it. Now, it's just it's, it's what you signed up for. Like. No, I, I don't stop treating an alcoholic because he's an alcoholic or a smoking COPD patient that keeps needing antibiotics. You know, mine is to treat them and, you know, and, and reach a, a therapeutic alliance with the patient, not to judge them, not to judge them. But we're seeing that judgment with all things COVID. We'll come back to the messaging in a minute. 
but there's something very important that you touched on this aspect of we don't refuse to treat the um the obese person who just has this um incessant need to eat we don't stop treating the copd patient who has gotten there because they've been smoking for 60 years of their life we don't stop treating people who have um neurological conditions due to alcohol abuse over the course of their life we don't say ah, you did this yourself so good luck sam off you go i mean you see horror stories now in america and i don't know if it's come across the atlantic yet but you know people being kicked off the transplant list for livers yep. and kidneys because yep. they weren't vaccinated there's absolutely no science behind that whatsoever it's like a discrimination isn't it for not wanting a vaccine and it's being, championed. it's being championed by people who work in healthcare to an extent. I've mm. I've heard doctors telling me, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, we should still treat them, treat them, but then they should pay for their treatment because they decided not to get jabbed. When did we ever start practicing that sort of ethical approach to patients? We've never done that. That's what I'm. That's what I've seen. Really, the biggest issue for me around all these things is that suddenly the doctors have lost their sort of ethical focus. You know, discriminating. You know, we, we, you know, when when did a valid refusal of consent not be a valid refusal of consent? You know, if uh, if if somebody stated, uh, you know, conversation even a few weeks ago, you know, a patient was, you know, they just had enough of life. They stopped eating and drinking, for example, and they just they were fully they had full capacity. They just didn't want to go to the hospital. The family were there. We were trying to get him to to sort of see see around it, but it was it's absolutely his right that day to not go to hospital because he fully weighed up the benefits and risks. He didn't want to go into the Trillisk hospital. Um, and that's within his right. It was a really difficult conversation, but that's uh, something I can't, you know, to, to throw him into the back of an ambulance is battery and assault, you know, and that's always been the case. You know, I, I don't pinch patients' noses and make them swallow the antibiotic. I tell them the, the pros, I tell them the cons, and that's really important. And we touched on valid consent earlier that, you know, not only is a valid refusal of consent valid, but, you know, the consent that was sought in the first place wasn't valid consent. You know, you've got to be given the cons. You know, I've talked about things like, you know, even if it's small print, even if it's really small print, chances of, for example, death by general anaesthetic or, you know, uh, uh, bleeding out on the table for your appendicectomy, you still need to know about it and, and, and sign your life away when it comes to the consent form. But I certainly didn't witness that sort of consent in the um, conveyor belt that was the vaccination centre where they're going through hundreds of people in one afternoon just like a pneumatic jabbing machine um and it's just bizarre that, that you know it's a cursory few questions there was hardly any medical screening patients didn't know what they've got well, i mean even now i speak to travel jab patients that don't know what they have jabbed into them you mentioned mrna complete oh, blanket yeah. course, um clinical trial you know you sound like a lunatic if you mention it's part of the, the clinical trial why, why would it be part of a clinical trial have, have you heard of a yellow card no what's a yellow card you know it's bizarre. I mean, that's part of the valid consent. If you have a reaction to this jab, this is how you process that reaction, you know, in terms of reporting it. Yellow card, green book, um, let your GP know. None of that was said, or very rarely was it said, let's say. Yeah. So how much of that have you seen then in clinic of these? Well, I, I took a sort of conscientious objection to taking these, to giving any jabs, so I've never given a jab. So often it would be just me ploughing away through the patients of an afternoon duty doctor list, and all eyes were on the COVID clinic. The whole building was taken over. So I've heard earshots of, you know, I've spoken to people, you know, that have had the jab, and, you know, asking them, what did you understand? I mean, I keep being offered the third jab, to be honest. I keep getting these texts and emails, and I'm, I'm quite tempted to go down and um, at least be counselled about the... Uh, the effects you know, the, the effects to see if they know their stuff as an injector and a vaccinator you need to know your stuff because you're injecting the drug into somebody so if you don't know the statistics about the harms and the benefits then you're not you've not got a right to be a vaccinator and these vaccinators around everyone from the, the the pharmacist to the very most junior members of the the nurse practitioner team nursing team receptionist you get to do a three three hour Course. Um, yeah. computer course you're fully fully good to go even the students have been vaccinated they've come for an education yet they're on the conveyor belt too yeah i i know a couple of people that signed up to do it here in the netherlands and when i speak to them about the statistics they're like no no that's not what we were shown so that can't be true i'm like oh, this, this is legit data you can find it on pubmed for all i care i'll give you the pubmed id mm. and then I, I don't know the the data we saw is it's very robust um, had a conversation uh, with them as well uh, while my uh, other half was pregnant 
about mm. uh, her not wanting to get the vaccine because she's pregnant. Oh, no, 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 it's completely safe. They've done the studies. This would have been... Ask to see the studies. Ask to see the studies. I did. I didn't get one. It's in its absence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I end up, end up on these sort of social media debates and if you get engaged, you've, you've done really well, but then they sort of throw a little bit of data from a sort of... Um, you know, a letter to the BMJ, for example, so it's not even peer reviewed. And so you go back with a rebuttal and then they disappear. So you just, you know, there's only so many times and then they just disappear or block you or call your name or, um, and that's, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? When it comes to debating science and observations and things. Oh yeah. Didn't you know the best way to win a debate is just to block and uh, name call. It's yeah, it works. I said before, I'd happily, happily be wrong on all of this, but I, I just, I'm asking for just simple data just to, to give me, so I'm fully aware that, you know, I'm seeing one side of the coin. I'm part of the groups that are just, you know, we're, we're bathing and drowning in all this data that shows the negative side of, you know, the vaccine is not working or harm from vaccines. But I'm not seeing anything, anything from the other side of the scientific community, what the 99% of people on the other side of the equation that are just full faith in the um, in, in the, the God-given gift of the vaccine. Mm. Give me the data. I'm happy to be wrong. I'd love to be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> so with that said, then, you didn't do any of the vaccinations yourself, but did you have to do any reporting for patients after the fact without speaking about any specific patient data? Yeah, I mean, both patient and doctor can report it. So as I mentioned, it's a busy old life being a GP, but um, I've done a few, but not, you know, I know I've underreported, you know, but I know a lot of people haven't reported or also underreported what they see, you know, so you strongly encourage. Um, I saw somebody the other week that had the, again, I've got to be careful what I say about confidentiality, the, the entire arm and leg had swollen up after the vaccine, massive golf ball lymph nodes all over them. Um, and to get an answer from a, a fellow colleague that this was any way related to the jab, despite it happening two days after, um, was impossible. And, and I, I asked her, I said, did you, did you do the yellow card? What's the yellow card? Explain that. I said, showed her the website. Um, and uh, yeah, I've asked her to do it really because you, know, you can't, there's so many coming through, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to. Can't do them all. Yeah. Can't do them all. It, it's funny that you mention that as I've, I've seen patients coming into my clinic in physiotherapy with those exact complaints. And then I say to them like, listen, did you speak to your doctor about this? Or, you know, make an appointment to speak to your doctor about this. People with uh, heart palpitations and stuff. And they're like, yeah, I did. My doctor said it's impossible because it's safe and effective. And there's no, there's no association of causality at all. Again, loads and loads of those actually interesting you mentioned about sort of funny arrhythmias. So, you know, not only heart attacks and myocarditis, but people having the jab and some matter of hours, literally hours after going into SVTs, fast AX, you know, all these tachycardias and just feeling unwell, you know, and just regretting the decision that they took the vaccine. I think a lot of people are or will soon regret the fact that they took all three. Uh, I'm, have had a fair few people messaging me after the fact because see what i post and whatnot saying that they've had xyz effect following but further to that then are there any colleagues that you're working with that have acknowledged that there's potential or are there any medical colleagues that are open i'd like to, the to say I'd, I'd like to say that there are but not, not that i'm aware of in my locality let's say um, there's a lot nationally and we're connecting as we speak, you know, we're, we're part of things like, um, like the heart group I'm part of and, and other sort of across the countries, you know, little groups, little pockets, but not as little as you would think they are. And there's lots of people and we keep saying we're awake or words affect, but you know, I, I think everyone else needs to be awake actually. It's just, it's a bizarre bizarre phenomenon yeah to answer your question no, there's no one locally I've, I've lost good friends over this medical colleagues you know good friends have just blocked me and all i've said is can you watch this video you know i've presented pediatric harm data to a child safeguarding doctor for example and they just walk out and you're disturbing my coffee break bizarre and this is I, I can't tell you i've got one ally in the whole call not one medically speaking and these are sensible people these are people that i've worked with for years and years and they're friends as well as colleagues, so you know, bad people. In fact, quite the converse. Um, I've had people agree with me. For example, you know, there's no benefit around vaccinating healthy under 20. Well, I was absolutely agreed, Dr. Cartland. You, you're absolutely right. Fully understand the data, particularly in view of the Omicron 
variant. Um, we will not be vaccinating our children because the harm's too much compared to the benefit gained from having the jab. And then the very next you know, day or two, they're, they're sending children down to the, the vaccination clinic. It's just really hard. We've been pretty doom and gloom, but do you see any place for the vaccination for people? Uh, not, not now. I think you've got to remember what we're dealing with. I mean, in the current wave, and that's what I've had to be really careful to talk about, Omicron. Omicron's very different. Like, I, I can say that I saw the odd case sporadically of breathless, feverish people coughing their guts up um, at the very beginning. You know, my own friend, by the way, died of COVID. So, you know, I'm not a COVID denier in any of this. So, yeah, of course, you know, there's a role for, you know, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, you know, it's it's it's... You know, shaved off many many deaths of all the worldwide diseases due to the childhood program for example um so you know in terms of omicron as an individual virus and a, a strain of virus it's just not i mean i, I, I read the notes my little study I, I i took the trouble to to read all the notes and mild flu-like illnesses at worst you know some didn't know they had anything some of them have an itchy nose or a fork, you know a, a bad head but we you didn't know, start that, up this um due to or because of Omicron, we started this from the Alpha and the Delta uh, variants. Now, um, uh, vaccinating during a pandemic is uh, totally uh, also another discussion to be had. But um, was there a place then when the vaccines were first rolled out? Because, yeah, you've mentioned for Omicron, not really, as there's no real benefit, but for, for the other variants, because I think that's a fair question. And I think that's a fair thing for, for people to ask and, and, and know. No, it, is a, it is a fair question. I mean, we, we're seeing even now, you know, that even Pfizer, for example, that the guy who um, runs Pfizer has come out and said that the, the vaccines actually are only efficacious, for example, for four months, six months. So they, the, 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 there's never been any kind of commitment to looking at you know the, the 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 innate humoral you know um, immune system the natural immunity in any of this um and likewise you know there's never i've never known a condition a pandemic where we've not received any sort of guidance on early treatment protocols you know there's lots and lots of you know early treatment that you know stuff like budesonide zinc vitamin d ivermectin there are lots and lots of data that shows it's relatively cheap stuff you know that, that's give a lot of benefit um, you know, over and above vaccine, I know you've asked me specifically about the vaccine and was there a role at the beginning, but you know, there's a role for a lot of things at the beginning. You know, if somebody's got the start of a flu-like illness at the beginning of the pandemic, then tell them about zinc, you know, cheap as chips, you know, get it from the pound shop. Uh, tell them about vitamin D and get that from the pound shop. You know, give them these things that are going to be immunosupportive um, before you even start talking about vaccines. But a lot of what's been happening through the whole pandemic is we've been chasing our tail, announcing a measure and then not you know, not exercising it, for example, you don't have to wear your masks anymore in three days. For example, you know, if your masks are, you know, are not necessary, then, you know, for Thank example, you. at my own church, I can stand up and sing with a mask off. So as you should sit back down, I'm a crown attack from all angles. And these, these are the sort of illogical, weird things that we've been subject to. And it's been very um, well orchestrated in terms of a fear campaign and, you know, very, you know, it, it's going to take some undoing because people are literally, whether it's, you know, doctors, nurses, you know, fellow humans that have had the jab. They've, I think in another interview called it buyer's remorse. You know, it's yeah. people in, they've been complicit in this. And it's a very hard thing to unpick when you realise that, you know, that, that vaccination has caused the myocarditism. And interestingly, you know, every single person who jabs, um, it goes in the medical notes, the individual who jabs. So I wonder what the consequences of that would be in the future, particularly when the vaccine, the big companies have got immunity from prosecution. Uh, when it comes to um, indemnifying any future harm claims till whenever it is in the, in the far distant future. But every single individual vaccinator is named in the medical notes. Yeah. So I don't know why, why that's been stipulated, but it's 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 conspicuous, I'd say. That's interesting. I mean, um, the cognitive dissonance around what you're seeing, the effects of the vaccine and whatnot, it, it is mind-boggling. I think what I was getting at with asking you about the messaging is that fear campaign that was set out right at the beginning, way more, stay home, stay safe, save your gran and all the rest of it. But then that last bit about who vaccinated you and the indemnity for the big drug companies, the big manufacturers is also an interesting thing because the immigrants uh, that have come over into the US uh, or migrants uh, to the US or um, uh, asylum seekers 
are exempt from vaccination. And the reason they're exempt from vaccination is because they don't fall under that specific country or the US's um, populace. So the vaccine companies don't have this immunity from prosecution. So they've said, right, we're not going to inject you because we don't have immunity. Now that seems a little bit iffy to say the least, considering... Everything's a little bit iffy, isn't it? Everything's inconsistent. I mean, there's never been a top-down approach to all of this. You've got one country, I mean, even in the UK, look at this policy on vaccinating children. You know, Wales and Scotland are saying yay. UK, I don't think at the moment, are saying yes. There's inconsistency within the United Kingdom. And then, you know, if you're from the outside looking in, these guys haven't got a consensus approach to anything from vaccinating to... Um, you know, they couldn't agree with how long after the first jab that the second jab should be. That kept changing. The goalposts are changing ever, you know, ever daily. And it's so confusing to the doctors. So how the poor patient who just wants reassurance and to trust their medical practitioner, which is essentially that's that's the name of the game, isn't it? Um, the, the worry is that the, the, the trust is going to be lost forever. You know, we've built our profession upon trust. Um, and, and be an advocate of the patient. And you know, people trust you with their lives and their deepest secrets. When that's gone, when that trust is broken, then there's going to be some serious rebuilding required. And, you know, I don't think these doctors can come back from it. Hence the left. With regards to the to the messaging, with the fear mongering, with the changing of the goalposts, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Biderman's chart of coercion. Are you familiar with that at all? I've heard of it. I could be wrong here, but I think it was um, prisoners of war from Vietnam. And then there was a psychologist who then developed this to uh, see what the torture was, what that was done there. And I'll I'll read it as to the different um, points that they have with it, as it makes for some interesting reading when you compare what was done to us. So... There's one, two, three, four, five, six, and eight different steps. Isolation, stay at home, isolate. There's monopolization of perception, the messaging on the news, this fear, this continuous ticker tape, anyone who spoke of a different viewpoint, whether it was early treatment, whether it was um, on mass mandates or the lab leak uh, theory hypothesis, they were all removed. Humiliation and degradation. So those same groups, what you've mentioned already, doctors having to wear badges saying I'm unvaccinated or what have you. Exhaustion, weakening the mental and physical ability to resist by isolating people, by preventing how much activity you can do, closing down gyms, all the rest of it. Threats, the doctors who were um, told that they're going to lose their jobs. It happened Mm. to care workers, then it was going to happen to doctors occasional indulgences and people being allowed out for a brief period of time or not you know loosen the noose a little bit and then demonstrating omnipotence and they knew exactly what the vaccines could and couldn't do and then you've also got forcing a trivial demand what you mentioned there with wear your mask while you're sitting down at church but you can get up and you can take it off to sing and then you have to put it back on again or when you're walking around in the restaurant the mask has to be on and then as soon as you sit down there's there's all these different things that went with the messaging that went with the fear that you can pin onto that abusive yeah. toxic relationship that we've it's had beautiful. it's been beautifully um orchestrated really when you think about it it's uh, somebody somewhere is uh, very proud of themselves with that person maybe are you familiar with with spy b and sage at all yeah i, sp- I spoke to uk common about that actually and uh, you know these are much units this is this is work that we know is done behind the scenes and you know even to the wording of these things they're all done with psychological backing you know, the, the little treble you know you see treble word phrases you know like hands face space bomb 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 you know it's all the same sort of rhythmic uh, rhythmic rhythmic trebles of you know and there's there's proven psychological techniques you know and as you mentioned in that list you know it's it's been beautifully orchestrated um, and it's confusing to everyone you know it's confusing it's almost like a stockholm syndrome now because we've gone back to you know plan a um i still drive past people that are sat up in the car with their mask and visor on alone going around town where i live in cornwall they're walking around wary of each other looking fearful looking just concerning it is and they've got their um, chunky wooden um you know face masks on that they don't need to wear but they're so scared of 
disease and pathogens and things that are just gripped by that fear. And that's what is really important in all this message is that we have to acknowledge that fear. People have been subjected for two years, so it's going to be hard to snap them out of this and absolutely acknowledge the fact that you know, scary times have ensued. You know, I've, I've seen the same things and I've been careful to say not only am I a doctor, but I'm also a dad and a human. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, we're, we're all subject to these signals. We're subject to that nudge, that spy B, you know, propaganda that's that's flying about that, you know, and, and, and that, that, that's the only thing I can think of that explains sort of dissonance amongst medical colleagues, nursing colleagues, churches, for example, um, where just everyone seems to just be shrugging everything off and, and, and not standing up for principles. Very odd. As a medical professional, then seeing what's occurred seeing what's happened what would be your advice to someone in order to recover from this because i i don't want to i don't want to pose the question of would you recommend the vaccine or not as you know, there's individual um elements to be taken into account but what would be your advice to someone in terms of getting over the psychological aspects here um just explore the alternative narrative really we're talking about doctors or public or both or... everyone Everyone. Yeah. yeah, just, I mean, everything's conspicuous in terms of like the censorship, for example, you know, when you speak out and you get shut down, that's sort of a major red flag waving. You know, for somebody, if, somebody, if somebody's speaking out publicly and they get told to shut up or the police arrest them, for example, you kind of want to hear what they've got to say. So all I would say is open your ears, um, you know, listen to the alternatives, you know. Um, there's lots of people out there now, there's lots of organisations that, um, you know, a, a setting about putting the record straight on all of this um, and, and just be, be true to what you're seeing because, I mean, I don't think even just medical people, I think every member of the public knows somebody. There's always a story that somebody's got to tell of somebody that's become poorly after their vaccine. Somebody knows somebody that had a stroke the day after their jab and just listen to these signals. And, you know, I, I think the tide is turning because, for example, you know, our local paper down in Cornwall put something about get your... Um, five to 11 year olds, not five to 11 year olds, and 12 to 17 year olds down during the half term. And the comment section from two weeks ago reads very differently to the comment section just this week where people are telling them to put so their nice. vaccines where the sun doesn't shine, essentially. Um, so people are waking up and that's it. And the only way I can explain those people are, it's a bit like the people that are in that grey zone, like I've had three now, I'm not having any more. And that's where you need to explore that. And the way I've got around that is, you know, getting these people that are in that grey zone to look at the graphs. I don't want to kind of preach to them what the graphs show, let them talk. One of the, some of the more successful ways I've um, got people to listen and wake up is that I've, I've asked them to explain the graphs. You talk me through it. What do you say? These are not academic people, but they come to the same conclusions as me. And that's why we've got to be really careful. People have been scared out of their wits for two years now, and we've got to be sensitive to that. We can't just go browbeating them and, you know, you know. It's not going to work. Never going to work. Got to meet them at, at the, and these are people who are like, you know, a, a guy just gave me a scale of people that are sort of one to 10 in this process now. So the 10 are the people who are, you know, receptive to all these things, are fully awake to use their phrase. And you've got the ones and the twos and the threes that, you know, even if they witness a murder and the fires, uh, the gun being shot, they still wouldn't think that a murder had been committed. And then you've got the sort of gray zone in between, and they're the ones that are, I've had it myself, but. I wouldn't vaccinate my kids. And then you have to explore that with them. Why? What, what have you seen? What have you heard? And, and explore that and gently walk with them. Really. And that's what doctors do. And that's what concordances with patients. You know, you give an opinion and you have to meet them halfway. It's a therapeutic alliance, I think I called it earlier. Yeah. Um, and we've got to remember that. These are scared people. So what is, you mentioned that you're working with the heart group now. Um, and it's not that you're just sitting back after uh, taking your know, garden leave and yeah, screw it, it's somebody else's problem. You're making steps towards doing something about it as well. You know, you're yeah. not just talking I mean, about it, you're being about it. What is it you guys are trying to do with the heart group? Just raise awareness, give that other narrative, you know, the, the narrative that shut down. You know, I could easily have, you know, just crawled under a rock after all this, but ultimately, you know, that the, the NHS is going to need rebuilding and hopefully it's going to be rebuilt with people of integrity, people who, are, you know, are concerned about people's ethics. Um, you know, and, you know, this, this is the future of the NHS really, or whatever the next health service is going to be. Um, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a, a nice positive note 
to uh, end things on. Have you got any last messages, anything that you think people should be paying more attention to? No, I mean, all I would really say, aside from that, is that, you know, I'll just appeal to my colleagues, the colleagues that do know. And I know because when I look them in the eye, you can tell that they know. Um, that just if they're seeing things and hearing things, step forward. These people that are contacting me privately now, you know, remember your oath. Remember the reason you took it. You know, you became a nurse, a doctor, paramedic. Remember these things daily. Look yourself in the mirror. Um, every single day you go on duty. And, and I'm calling these people out in a way because... We're talking about patient safety, which is, you know, the bread and butter of our profession. Um, I just ask them to speak out, even anonymously, you know, mate, there's no good private messaging me on Facebook or Twitter. Um, talk about it, raise the alarm. You know, I've, I've answered my job. I've had to cancel myself to be able to speak freely and unshackle myself, as it were. Um, just just remember why you did the job that you're doing. Um, and, and, and you've got to look your patients in the eye after all of this, when the dust settles, you've got to look your patients in the eye and, and trust needs rebuilding. I'm calling them out really.